This morning we were wrapping up a short two-week teaching in response pretty much to the Supreme Court decision recently on same-sex marriage. And in my research, I ran across a fascinating survey of a number of Americans, series of questions about this, but one of the questions that was really determinative in how people answered other questions was this one. It's very simple. Do you have gay or lesbian friends? And those who said they do have such friends are twice as likely to say same-sex marriage should be legal as those who do not. Twice as likely. Across the board in the survey, if you have gay friends, you are much more likely to endorse both same-sex marriage and same-sex sex, though the latter to a lesser degree, curiously. Um, I think the closer and dearer those friends are to you, the more challenging it is to hold truth and love together. And the more, more questions, the more I call, but what abouts, are racing through your mind, especially in light of uh, recent things in our culture and even what, what was taught here last, last week. Um, but clearly, the answer to your questions is not to have fewer gay friends. That is so contra Jesus, who, who, had, who was friends with all kinds of people. He was reputed to be someone who had all sorts of friends. He was known as a, as a friend of sinners of, of every sort, it seemed like. Um, my concern, though, is that if we are not well-grounded in the historic teaching of the Scriptures by the church on this subject, our compassion will be weakened rather than strengthened for our friends because we will not be able to speak the truth in love. And when it comes to the kind of confusion that we're facing in our culture, this is exactly what we need to do. It's what Paul had in mind in the book of Ephesians when he says um, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All of these things surround the issue that we're talking about. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We as a church family, we want to be able to speak the truth in love. And so last week, we tried to establish during this time that biblically, the foundation for this whole issue is that the Bible teaches that marriage is designed by God to be between one man and one woman woman. Now, I know um, that that raises some but whatabouts for, for many of you, especially those of you who have dear friends um, who wrestle with this issue. And so what I'd like to do today is try to ad address about a handful of those but whatabouts that seem especially significant to me or I see often as a pastor. Um, the good news for you is that tonight in this room, we're going to have a panel discussion at six o'clock with uh, a number of our leaders, um, Mark Lederbach, Sam Williams, Greg Mathias, and those three are our elders, and then Gene Burris is going to join them, who's doing his PhD work in this area, and they are going to clean up the mess that I make this morning. So this is wonderful. You, you will need to come back at 6 o'clock tonight. I hope you do that. You can help, though, if this afternoon, if you would, just shoot me at this email address, larryt.northwake.com questions that you would like this panel to address tonight. And we'll start 
um, if not the entirety of our time, will be given to those questions that are submitted uh, ahead of time in writing. So if you have a question, uh, let, me, let me make sure, uh, make sure to send that to me at that email address, and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to address that tonight as a panel. But this morning, let me address five of these common, but I think important, but whatabouts. The first but what about that I often run across is, but what about Leviticus, okay? Um, that, that book that many of you are having your devotional readings in these days, your, your personal favorite and back in the Old Testament, the dusty, sticky pages of the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus has two very direct commands that speak to homosexuality. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, they read like this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, not a good thing. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And so Leviticus seems pretty clear as well as pretty severe on these issues related to homosexual practice. Um, the response to this is to, is to challenge us that we can't just pick and choose what we want to apply out of the book of Leviticus randomly, right? How can you say you want to honor the teaching of Leviticus about homosexuality, but not honor, for instance, the teaching of Leviticus about your diet, which, and this, this is going to grieve and shock many of you, Leviticus 11, verse 12 says, Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. So the next time you're at the coast and you're swinging by your favorite seafood restaurant, uh-uh, no, 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 no shrimp, no lobster for you, right? Okay, it's forbidden by the book of Leviticus. Um, so the argument goes, Leviticus, it's a take it or leave it proposition. You can't cherry-pick your way through Leviticus, right? And I, I think there's a little bit of wisdom in that. Um, if you want to use Leviticus, they say, to outlaw homosexual behavior, then your diet is in jeopardy as well. Um, the point is well taken. By the way, pork's in that mix, too, which is very troubling for many of them. Now, it's true. We don't say as a church family, if, in, if it's in Leviticus, I'm a-doing it, Okay? That's not how we handle Leviticus. For instance, um, Leviticus 19, verse 27 and 28 says, You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, if we just applied all of Leviticus, you would know that I'm in trouble this morning. Yesterday, I marred the edges of my beard. And many of you are in trouble this morning because you're all tatted up, okay? You may not be able to see it, but you are, and you know who you are, right? Um, but it's been, it's been rightly said, we don't simply adopt the Mosaic Covenant whole hog as our church membership covenant, right? Uh, I went over to the new members class, talked to them this morning, when they sign our church covenant, we don't give them all 633 laws from the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and said, this is our church covenant. You know, we don't handle it that way. But at the same time, it doesn't seem right to completely discard the law of Moses in Leviticus 
again, whole hog, just to throw it out as totally irrelevant to us if we really believe it's God's Word. And so scholars have helped us with this, and they've proposed that Leviticus has different kinds and categories of law, and there are different ways to think about this, but a common one is that some of the laws are, are civil. They had to do with how you governed a nation, a different nation. Some of them are ceremonial. They were how Jews approached God according to worship practices in the Old Testament around temple or tabernacle or whichever. We don't do that. But some others, they would say, fall in a category called moral. And those are not limited to a particular culture and time or people, but are for all people in all times. And as you can imagine, it's not easy to discern the category all the time, which is moral and which might be ceremonial or or civil, perhaps. So one of the things that's really helpful is that we would look not just for those categories, but we would look for continuity or discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New. So you would look to see, for instance, is is the Levitical teaching about adultery and incense repeated in the New Testament? And we would say, yes, it is. The New Testament also teaches against adultery and teaches against incest. And so we would find there a continuity that moves it from one culture distinct long ago to another culture far away in another time and place. Um, And we would find a a kind of universality to that. Um, However, and many of you will be glad to know, the teaching about beard trimming and tattoos is not repeated in the New Testament. There's discontinuity there, right? So this may not be the end all to the discussion with your parents about whether you should get that tattoo or not, but it does change the way we think about it since it's not one of those things that's got continuity in the New Testament. Now, as we look at the two commands in Leviticus that address homosexuality, there's significant continuity between the book of Leviticus and a particular passage or two in the New Testament, especially Romans 1, which we looked at last week. So since we looked at it a little bit last week, let me give you a quick flyby that comes from an excellent article that's linked on the front page of our website in the leader blog there uh, by uh, Sam Williams, one of our elders. And Sam summarizes the message of the first chapter of the book of Romans this way. He says, Paul attributes the origin of same-sex passions and practices to a failure to thank and honor God. In other words, to disordered worship. Humanity's original rejection of God then incurs his judgment and his passive yet terrible wrath, wherein the passage says, Romans 1 says, God gave them up. Repeatedly it says this. Three times, God gave them up. He simply lets them alone, leaves them to their own devices, giving them over to impure lusts, dishonorable passions, and a debased mind. So in this passage of Romans 1, disordered desires of all sorts result from disordered worship. Now, that's a good summary of what Paul's saying about um, the context for the verses about homosexuality in Romans 1. These are those verses... Romans 1, verse 26 and 27 say, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves 
the due penalty for their error. Here we see that homosexuality is not really the root sin that's going on here. Again, disordered worship is. And homosexuality is a result of God granting people their way, turning them loose to embrace their passions without his good and loving restraint. Um, Paul, uh, it's interesting, you get the sense here, without question, that the book of Romans in the New Testament affirms the teaching of Leviticus in the Old Testament about homosexuality. The perspectives are very, very similar, aren't they? And there's a New Testament scholar, Robert, Robert Genyon. He, he sees even the language is similar here in Romans 1 and also in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists a list of sins that if practiced will keep you out of the kingdom. Homosexuality is one of those. And the language used there comes right out of Leviticus, he says. So again, we have continuity established here between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of the Levitical teachings on homosexuality. But before we leave that, let me, let me draw your attention to the way Romans 1 ends. Okay? It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, I want you to notice clearly here, Romans 1 is not a treatise about homosexuality. It's much bigger than that in what it's talking about, isn't it? See that list of sins? Did you notice that those are our sins? That they are in that list? Pride? Um, gossip? Even disobedience to parents is on that list. Um, Clearly, all our sins are there. And Romans 1 is telling us that that's part of God's judgment upon us as he releases us to our passions. Now, this leads to our second, but what about? But what about all those other sins that Christians tolerate? And people will say, like gluttony, a particularly Baptist sin, evidently, um, or divorce, others might say. And let's just be honest. When we tolerate any sin for any reason, it is a grievous lack of love and courage, and of this we must just repent. There's no excuse for it. When we fail, for instance, to speak loving but hard truth to someone who's pursuing a divorce and instead treat it as some kind of right of self-fulfillment, we are failing to truly love our friends. We are less than loving. And of that, we must just simply say, you are right and we are wrong and of this we repent. But having said that, To use toleration of one sin 
as the basis for tolerating another sin as when someone says, you tolerate gluttony, why are you all been out of shape about homosexuality? I don't see how that logic works. I don't see how that is more loving to simply perpetuate the error on other people in other ways. Especially in light of what the Apostle Paul calls us to be and do as a church with respect to how we, what we tolerate and what we won't tolerate. First um, Corinthians 5, there's a situation going on in Corinth. If you're familiar with Corinth, this is no surprise to you where there was immorality going on. And he says, I'm writing to you, church, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is calling us to an intolerable non-acceptance of practiced sin in the church. Okay. Um, with the strongest of exhortations, he doesn't want the church to tolerate it, let alone celebrate it or endorse it or promote it as good and acceptable, whether that's sexual immorality or greed. But this is the difficult thing. This is precisely what the endorsement of same-sex marriages, marriage causes us to do. Okay? Because we understand the Scriptures to teach that God has ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman, um, we end up having to endorse, even promote, a view that is unbiblical, a view that leads people into sin. And this is, this is why we're in this unfortunate position of having to teach so extensively and address this issue when it's really small in the Scripture, but it is large in our culture because our culture has now decided to promote and celebrate it, and they would like to invite us to join the party, and we simply cannot. Because of truth as we understand it and because of love as we understand it. Now, Paul, back in Romans 1, seems especially concerned about those who not only practice this, but endorse these kinds of sins. Again, listen to what he says. It's the last verse in Romans chapter 1, after he's listed all those sins, right, of which homosexuality has been one. He says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. He's especially concerned about those who endorse and approve these things. And what this brings to mind right away to me is the steady trickle of Christian leaders who are coming out in favor of same-sex marriage. Um, this, is, to me, is a very perilous thing to do as a Christian leader, and you're going to hear about it. But rather than tweet about it or blog about it or gossip about it, will you join me when that happens and pray for those leaders? They're under tremendous cultural pressure to do this, and they have fallen to it. We need to pray for them because Paul is greatly concerned about this. So, but what about all those other sins we tolerate? The answer is that we are sorry for those failings. We must love better, and we must not tolerate or celebrate any sin, and that includes homosexuality as we understand what the Bible teaches about it. 
All right, a third, a third but what about? Uh, but what about, this is one that's pretty common, but what about two people who are in a caring, monogamous, faithful, same-sex relationship? Um, there's a British uh, pastor and Christian leader who writes a lot. His name is Steve Chalks. He, he puts that position this way. He's come out in favor of it. He said, promiscuity is always damaging and dehumanizing. Casual and self-centered expressions of sexuality, homosexual or heterosexual, never reflect God's faithfulness, grace, and self-giving love. Only a permanent and stable relationship in which respect and faithfulness are given and received can offer the security in which well-being and love can thrive. That's the point. When we refuse to make room for gay people to live in loving, stable relationships, we consign them to lives of loneliness, secrecy, fear, and even deceit. It's one thing to be critical of a promiscuous lifestyle, but shouldn't the church consider nurturing positive models for permanent and monogamous homosexual relationships? Um, and there's so many things that could be said in response to that. One is, yes, we should. We call them friendships. Okay? And we want to encourage and nurture those. We want to see those go deeper and more beautiful and more pure. But there's another British Christian pastor. His name is Sam Alberry. He's writing on these issues beautifully. I encourage you, if you want to read somebody's stuff, he has a book called Is God Anti-Gay? It's very helpful. Um, he has wisely cited this passage in response uh, to this question of faithfulness in, in these relationships, if that doesn't trump the arrangement. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes to that church who's struggling with her immorality, right, in 1 Corinthians. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, Citing that passage, Sam Albury wisely says, the Bible nowhere allows for the view that faithfulness justifies a relationship that is otherwise forbidden. When Paul encounters this illicit relationship in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, he does not stop to check whether or not it is committed and stable before rebuking the church for tolerating it. Okay? A man has his father's wife, likely his stepmother. Paul doesn't stop to say, are you guys committed? Are you in this for the long haul? That's irrelevant. It's the arrangement that matters. He goes on to say, faithfulness is not a trump card that somehow makes any relationship morally good. Displaying some virtuous qualities while committing a sin does not make the sin less sinful. He says a group of armed robbers holding up a bank might each display consideration and loyalty to one another, but that would no way, in no way lessen the sinfulness of what they are doing. Being an impeccable team player doesn't make robbery, robbery morally good any more than great commitment makes homosexual sex morally good. Okay. Plus, you have to wonder if faithfulness renders any twosome virtuous, what about any threesome? Why would that be different? This is the clear concern of Chief Justice John Roberts as he wrote in dissent to the recent Supreme Court decision. He says it's striking how much of the majority's reasoning would apply with equal force 
to the claim of a fundamental right to plural marriage. If there's dignity in the bond between two men or two women who seek to marry and in their autonomy to make such profound choices, why would there be any less dignity in the bond between three people who, in exercising their autonomy, seek to make the profound choice to marry? So, but what about faithful, monogamous, same-sex relationships? Simply put, the presence of virtue in the mix does not absolve us of the vice that remains. It doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. A fourth, but what about? And this may be new to some of you, but it's so, so important. Um, What about, but what about Christians who wrestle with SSA? Um, SSA. What is, what is that? Some of you never heard of that, except for a corporate prayer uh, last week. We found out that all our missionaries experience SSA, all of them. It's called stateside assignment. Okay? We're talking about something totally different here. That is not what we're talking about. Uh, SSA is a, an expression, an abbreviation that means same-sex attraction. And again, let me, let me quote one of our elders, Dr. Sam, again. Basically, I taught him everything he knows, okay? Um, And he's really on track here. Actually, it's more the other way around. He's really mentoring me in these things. Um, He says, same-sex attraction, and this is important for you as you care for your friends. Listen to this closely. Same-sex attraction is an intentionally descriptive term describing the direction of a person's desire. SSA can vary in strength and also in durability or longevity. It can be weak or moderate or strong. It can be temporary or enduring. The term SSA is just descriptive and says nothing about how a person feels about his or her sexual attraction or what they intend to do or actually do with their sexual desires. It doesn't say anything about their identity, who they are, and how they label themselves. Now, Sam says that approximately 6% of men and 4.5% of women report experience at least some degree of same-sex attraction. Could be short-term, could be longer-term, could be a little, could be a lot, same-sex attraction. He introduces another idea called SSO, same-sex orientation. Listen to how this differs. It's helpful as we care for and love our friends. He says... SSO, same-sex orientation, is the term that I prefer to use since the term homosexual often connotes an, connotes an identity. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. What it means is that some people experience same-sex attraction in such a manner that it's predominant compared to opposite-sex attraction and such that it is strong and durable and persistent. And like SSA, SSO is just descriptive. It doesn't say how they feel about it or whether they embrace it or not. He says about 2% of men and 1% of women report a same-sex or homosexual orientation wherein their primary and predominant sexual attraction is to the same sex. So, if you are here today and you're experiencing same-sex attraction at some level in that spectrum, there are certain really critical questions that may be pressing on you. And I'd like to walk through a couple of those with you. Most of us have friends that we know 
who wrestle with same-sex attraction. They may or may not fit like yet they can trust you with that. But they may in the future. And so it's important for all of us to think through this well. Here's the first question. If you're experiencing same-sex attraction, you may wonder, am I gay? And I'm using those terms differently. You may be experiencing same-sex attraction. Am I gay? Listen again. Listen again to my mentor, Dr. Sam. With respect to identities, he says... The identity is being gay, for instance. He said, they don't happen to us. They come from us. I am the central organizer and active agent in forming my identity. Even though most of us are not aware of choosing our identities, they are our construction that's built out of the raw materials of who we are. Our life experiences, key relationships, all of this construed or interpreted in light of some prevailing narrative or worldview or philosophy of life. He says, with respect to the development of sexual identity, some parts of that are biogenetically hardwired and other parts are shaped by key relationships within particular cultures with particular values and views about the way things are supposed to be. And he says, this is important. He says, of course, at the center of all of this is the active, responding choosing person made in the image and likeness of God but also fallen biologically and psychologically and spiritually and embedded in a fallen world. So to summarize all that, um, Sam is helping us see that even though we may not choose the shape of our desires, we do choose our identities. Okay? So if you choose to self-identify as gay, that is a choice you make in response to your desires, it is not your only choice. It's not a necessary choice. And we would say it is not a Christ. It's not what Christ has for you in that choice. Listen to another one of our North Wakers deals with this. He writes, when you're a Christian, the most important thing about you, your identity, how you identify yourself, is that you belong with Christ, united to Him in death and resurrection. He says, I happen to have same-sex attraction. I happen to be gay in that way, but it's not the most important thing about me. It's an aspect and only an aspect of who I am as a man and what I struggle with as a Christian. He says, Christians really cannot be gay Christians. It's the other way around. Christianity changes what it means to be gay. That is to struggle against same-sex lusts and the pull of same-sex relationships to live chastely and celibately. Now, the last question that I'll address that some of you may feel pressed by, those of you who struggle with SSA. You may wonder, because of careless, um, sometimes hateful teaching in this area, uh, you may wonder, am I damned? Uh, Am I damned because of this struggle that I have? And uh, I'm going to cite someone who's thought carefully about this and written well about it, because this is so, so important. You understand how important this question is. Sam Storms writes about what Paul says in that big list in 1 Corinthians 6 where he lists all these sins that can keep you out of the kingdom, homosexuality being one of those. He says Paul in that list isn't saying that if you ever commit a homosexual act, you are forever excluded from the kingdom of God. Okay, listen to this closely. He isn't saying that if you were ever guilty of idolatry or ever committed adultery, or ever swindled someone, or ever got drunk, even if only one time that you are excluded from the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. 
quite clearly. Many of these Corinthians had lived for lengthy periods of time in such behavior. But Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, he has in mind an unrepentant immorality. He is not talking about people who sin, but people who relish their sin and are proud of it and have given themselves over to it and refuse to repent and turn away from it. Men and women who sin, and all do, but are broken and grieved by it and seek God's help to forsake it, are not in view in this passage. Both Paul or Paul's talking here about those who sin defiantly, persistently, as a matter of course, as an uninterrupted habit for which they feel no remorse or regret or pain of conscience. And these, whether they be homosexual or heterosexual, will come under God's judgment. He says, so let me be perfectly clear about this. Men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction are not excluded from the kingdom of God. Rather, Paul has in mind men and women who persistently and unrepentantly indulge in same-sex activity. Which is why we cannot endorse and promote this. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, where our identity is Christ follower, child of God, Jesus lover. When that is our identity, there is no condemnation for us no matter what. Okay, I just lied. There's one more question that I want to deal with in this vein. Um, Some of you will hear the reasoning that you struggle through this issue. You'll say, but I was born this way. I didn't choose it. I can remember as soon as I had any sexual awareness at all, I was was slanted this way. And um, I am not slanted that way. I'm slanted in other dark and evil ways. Okay. So let me cite someone who shares your struggle. He's a pastor in Great Britain. I've already introduced him to you. His name is Sam Albury. He struggles with SSA. And I'll let him talk about the question of genetics. He says, our response to that is that even if something can be demonstrated to have been present from birth, it's not on that basis justifiable. We need to be able to understand and carefully explain the biblical doctrine of original sin. In Adam, we were all born out of sync with God. Many of the desires and traits with which we are born reflect that. In other words, what feels natural and right to us may be profoundly unnatural and immoral in God's eyes. Being born with a particular propensity does not make it right or healthy. We are all born in Adam with a warped nature, and all of us show show that in a whole host of ways from our very earliest days. It explains why Jesus said we need to be born again. Okay, So think back with me now um, to those statistics, right? Sam said roughly 5% or so of people in any given sample of our population experience same-sex attraction at some level. Could be short, could be long, could be mild, could be really strong, could be individual, could be broader-based. About 5%. Now do the math. You know, in a church our size you probably have friends who wrestle with this. People you love who wrestle with this. They may not have been able to trust you with that yet. But the church is here for them to help them bear this burden in a way that honors Christ 
just like the church is here for you in your sin struggle to help you bear it in a way that honors Christ. It is imperative that we respond in love, not fear, when our friends trust us with this. Wesley Hill is a um, Christian believer who struggles with SSA and has chosen to live a celibate life, a Christ-honoring life of purity in the face of his desires. But he says, I have an experience that was utterly disheartening at a, different, at a church. He says, it was a place I knew well and where I was known. I had, I had come out as someone who struggles with this to one, but not all of the pastors. And he had assured me that I had his support. On a couple of occasions before coming out publicly, I had preached at a couple of Sunday services at this church. But when it became widely known that I was gay, and he's using that the way we use SSA, okay? he's not identifying as a homosexual, he is identifying as a Christ follower who struggles with SSA. That's just the terminology he's using. He says, when it became widely known that I was gay, the lead pastors removed the audio recordings of my old sermons from the church's website. And one prominent family ended up leaving the church, telling the pastors they hadn't gone far enough in distancing themselves from me in the wake of my coming out. So this family felt that simply having these desires, same-sex attraction, even while remaining celibate was enough to disqualify someone from Christian ministry. See, if you have someone, a friend who trusts you with this struggle, you should listen really well and you should respond with great compassion and you should do some reading so that you do not respond in ignorance. And you must let love guide your response, not fear. We are not homophobic. We cannot be. And follow Jesus. All right. Um, let me give you one more, but what about? I promised you five. Last, but what about? But what about my friends and my family who are caught up in this struggle one way or another? First thing, you cannot deny your friends and your family, the people you love, you cannot deny to them that this is a serious sin. Okay? That is not love. Rosaria Butterfield writes about how to think about our sins so beautifully. She says, once you identify your sins, she says, don't bite a collar and a leash and give it a sweet name. Don't admit sin as a harmless but unhousebroken pet. Instead, confess it as an evil offense and put it out. Even if you love it, you can't domesticate sin by welcoming it into your home. Don't make a false peace. Don't make excuses. Don't get sentimental about sin. Don't play the victim. Don't live by excuse righteousness. If you bring the baby tiger into your house and name it Fluffy, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and Fluffy is eating you alive. Okay? She says that is how sin works. And Fluffy knows her job. That's how all sin works. Okay. Homosexuality is a great and serious sin. Love does not allow us to sugarcoat that. But, but, you need to know that for most of us, homosexuality is not our great sin concern. It's not the one that concerns us most. It's not the one we loathe most. That's your sin. That's the one that is stalking you. That's the one 
you have the greatest regret over, that is the one that you are trying to kill. Okay. See, whenever we judge one another's sin, we're eager in that. Chances are we've lost perspective on our own, and Paul helps us with this. This is why he says, I am the chief of sinners. He understands the depth of his sin and what costly grace had to be applied to it, the very death of Christ on the cross, for it to be atoned. But we dare not minimize the sin, and we dare not minimize the power of the gospel over the sin, the good news that Jesus died for sin, all types of sin, Everyone imaginable. He bore it. He has wiped it away. The gospel is good news for gays. It is good news for gossips. It is good news for greedy and prideful people and adulterers and fornicators and liars and worriers. It is the good news, the only hope for us all. And in this sense, the ground is remarkably level at the foot of the cross. And so, here we are, right? Sinners all. Such were some of us. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, His grace is sufficient for us all. Whatever the shape of your struggle, whatever it is, and we all have them in spades if we're honest, you need to know that this collection of people exist in large part to help you bear that and be free of it. To bear responsibility for it and then by Christ's bearing it, be free of it. A really confusing and beautiful thing Jesus says to Peter when he, Peter says, see, we, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is a pointer to the church. Okay. When someone leaves the community that is their, their cohorts in sin, whatever the shape of it, they are leaving something dear to them. And Jesus is saying, we, the church, are the hundredfold. We are their brothers and sisters and children and mothers, and our lands and houses are theirs. We welcome them, and it's worth it. It is worth it. When you talk with your friends outside of the kingdom who struggle with this, let them know that Jesus is worth it. Okay? No regrets. I love the way Sam Albury put it. He says, whatever we give up, Jesus replaces in godly kind and greater measure. No one who leaves will fail to receive, and the eterns are extraordinary a hundredfold. What we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. 
If the costs are great, the rewards are greater, even in this life. For me, these include, he says, a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry, the community of a wonderful church family, but greater than any of these is the opportunity that any complex and difficult situation presents us with to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ, learning that fullness of life and joy is in Him and in His service and nowhere else. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard, but Jesus is always worth it. No, whatever your struggle is, your church is going to stand with you and remind you that Jesus is always worth it, that it is always worth the struggle. So, Jesus calls us to love, and he calls us to truth. May those two always go happily hand in hand as you love and serve those around you who fight against this and who are being swept away in this great sin. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, have mercy on us, your people. Um, Forgive us for judging another's sin and making ours small. That's our skill. Help us to be good at repentance.